Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. This is a fun episode. Liz Lepakova, a second year MA student, teaching assistant, and supplemental instructor of sociology at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, stops by to talk about the work of Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman. Liz discusses their contributions to the sociology of everyday life, reflects on first reading the work in Russian, and introduces her schema for explaining their ideas. I've posted Liz's creation online so you can follow along as she works through the visual, and you can even download it to use in your classroom if you'd like. We conclude our discussion by talking about Berger and Luckman's influence on her own research on social time. Thanks for joining us today, Liz. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. So we are here today to talk about Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman. Could you give us a short introduction to who these two people are? I think in sociology, they're often known as a duo. That's how I know them. But I'm just curious, who are these people? Well, they are actually well-known. Both of them are well-known in sociology, but I think, at least in my own experience, experience of my supervisors and, you know, my professors and my students, as you rightfully said, they're more known as a duo. And they met in the U.S. after Bitterberger moved from finishing the school in London, and that's where they started working on what is called, like, the new school. And, uh, you know, they are mostly famous of sociology of everyday life, even though they both worked separately on sociology of morality and on religion and on a lot of other things. But most of it is basically phenomenology and sociology of everyday life. So especially their book, The Social Construction of Reality, it's one of those books that at some point in your training, most sociologists are at least exposed to it. And I'm curious, especially because you're in the midst of going through your training, do you get a sense that this is a book that everyone in the training is supposed to know? Or is it just one of those things that some people gravitate towards? I think that this is kind of a very good text to synthesize a lot of knowledge that you are going through when you're, you know, encountered during a sociology program. And uh, I think that's a very, very essential text of just kind of like making sure of how, you know, we all, all the time we have this, oh, there is a juxtaposition between like micro and macro uh, and things like that. Well, this book, I think, does a very great job of kind of explaining that these two things, even though they're still in a way juxtaposed, that they're not entirely different in terms of like they still have some interconnections and when we're talking about it there is still this organic kind of like fusion between two of them that's how i would construct my answer to it i suppose that's why it's a very important book that i think even maybe not everyone but most of the people should read okay that's interesting so for you it's not even just necessarily and we'll come back to your own encounters with the book sure absolutely but it's not even necessarily about citing this book and building your research off of it but rather it's useful for you to just kind of synthesize all these disparate parts of the field or all these different approaches in the discipline absolutely yeah okay and so then do you get a sense in terms of how it's presented to you that this is a book or these are people that you read their whole body of work or is it that you were exposed to, like when I encountered them, it was, here's this one chapter that everyone reads, or here there's two, cha- I think maybe two chapters that everyone reads from Berger and Luckman. Was that your experience or was it a more deeper engagement? It's a very interesting question, Kyle, because I come from a very different tradition of teaching and learning because I'm from a different country. I'm from Russia originally. And my whole specialty, my undergrad was actually sociological theory. Oh, okay. But when I was a sophomore, we encountered it as, as a, a couple of chapters, but 
most of all it was you know an overview uh, via lecture material and about you know what are the key concepts but it was in liaison with Alfred Schutz and the phenomenology so that's why it sounded more of it like you know kind of like skewed towards phenomenology as a whole when I first encountered it and it was less of like oh well, look at these people specifically and what they're thinking about something but more of a oh here is the social phenomenology and let's look at that and this is what they have to say about it okay and so you said it was your second year and you were a sophomore when you first encountered it. So how old would you have been around then? In Russia, we have 11 grades, not 12, okay. like in here. So I finished my high school when I was 17 and a half. So it will be 19 and a half, I presume. Okay, so you were 19 when you first encountered it. Do you remember what that was like? Did you enjoy reading this work? Was it difficult to get into or it was one of those texts that you found yourself connecting to? Um, and, I'm, and I really love asking you this question because you're closer to that experience. Absolutely. Sometimes I'm asking people <laughs> who are saying, oh yeah, you know, 30 years ago when I first read this, but that's really reconstructing our memory, right? So this is a more uh, truthful answer, I'm hoping. <laughs> No, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's like, uh, you know, as Mead said, you know, past doesn't exist that much because every time past is reconstructing in the present. So yeah, I agree with you. But for me, it was a very great text. But the problem with education somewhere outside of the mainstream language, meaning that something outside of English, is that there is definitely a problem with the translation you know, the translation problem. So I first read it in Russian and I thought that it was a little bit clumsy when I read it, but I really connected to the ideas. And later on, I reread it in English for the purpose of my bachelor's thesis. In my senior year, I found actually some mistakes in the translation. One of them that I really remember, and I was so excited to show it to my supervisor, is that it was physiological in the original text but it was translated as psychological which is a totally different thing yeah and i was like yeah and i was like whoa okay now it makes so much more sense all right yeah so but i really very much connected to the text as a whole because i was so excited that i read not only like the beginning but i read pretty much the whole stuff i really enjoyed it so what did you enjoy about it though i mean i know before you said that there's this connection between macro and micro and ability sure. to kind of synthesize these different approaches but especially as a 19 year old the first time you read it and then i guess a 21 year old the time when you returned and read it in english sure what was appealing about this particular because there's there's so many options in social theory right and there's so many different approaches yeah absolutely so what about this text drew you into it were there certain ideas that you felt just kind of worked yeah absolutely so i really emphasized in my you know bachelor thesis and in the whole scheme that we will talk about later but overall this whole because they begin their text is like we're going to show you that we are have this Viberian tradition and Durkheim at the same time. And I'm like, oh, uh, how is it even possible? Please explain, you know? And I was really excited. And I'm like, all right, let's see how that goes. And I started reading and um, they go with this again, like, you know, socialization and the internal processes and kind of, you know, more of a Viberian tradition. And then they're going of the, on, on the external. And that's where the whole situation becomes much more exciting because they basically show how social institutions are formed from scratch 
And uh, this is what I think fascinated me the most and still fascinates me a lot. How, because one of the major questions in sociology is like, how is society possible, right? And uh, all sociologists, one way or another, they answer this question. So this was very exciting because they basically showed about how something that we actually in nuclear we have control over is to face-to-face interaction, right? How this thing becomes something that we can't control at all, and it's some non-human thing that is actually kind of like, you know, Durheimian factual reality. And it was very fascinating. Yeah, so I guess it's not just the synthesizing abilities, which are so important because they're bringing together macro and micro, bringing together these different theorists that we kind of artificially say cannot be mm-hmm. in conversation, right? Especially when you're le- first learning sociology. Absolutely. But then also that synthesis of, or maybe not synthesis, but that, that focus on process matters a lot. It seems like you're drawn to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So just pushing that a little further, is it really their approach to sociology that excites you or are there any particular terms that you also find yourself returning to over and over? I'm just curious because there's so often with these big social theorists we think of, right? If you think of Durkheim, there's a language that you learn and there's, mm-hmm. you know, if you take a test, right? These are the terms that you assign to find what a social fact is. Mm-hmm. Um, with Weber, we have a whole, I mean, he's presenting us with a, a dictionary of terms, right? Right. Are there particular concepts with Berger and Luckman that you are drawn to also or is that more that approach? Yes and no. So overall approach is what I basically used. I will talk about it a little bit further, I suppose, but I used it as one of the three pillars for my bachelor thesis research about social time, which I'm really excited about. But apart from that, this whole creation of the objectified reality and all those concepts that go along with it. Uh, So the typification, the habitualization, the institutionalization, four levels of legitimation, and uh, basically reification, all those concepts and like these stages of creating this, you know, non-human, as I said, like superhuman reality, as they put it. This is what I think is a very good apparatus to analyze social institutions and social situations in general. Okay, let's shift a little bit to you being on the other side of the experience. So we've talked about you in your younger years encountering this work. Now you've had a chance as you're working on your master's to be a teaching assistant in the classroom and help other people mm-hmm. understand these ideas. Sure. So could you just tell us a little bit about what those experiences have been um, and then we can talk more about some of the details around it actually kyle if i'm being frank which which i want (laughs) (laughs) uh absolutely so i started doing this in my uh, undergrad because i was staying for my supervisor who was actually teaching sociological theory okay so i started then when i was a junior so like 20 years old or so yeah, so I was basically helping tutoring other students who didn't get sociological theory or had some issues, and then I graded some essays on things. It was very exciting, and I still, you know, talk to a lot of them, and they think that my way of explaining things is very, um, how to say, it's schematical, if we may call it like this, and that's, you know, what makes the visual students kind of into that, because some people are not auditory learners, which I am, for example, and they're like, oh, I need to have a scheme to present that, and I don't know what's about it that you get and I don't get. Does it make me less of a student or something like that, you know? But I kind of created all those like mind maps and things like that, which I think is a very great tool for teaching. So 
Yeah, that's been my experience and uh, I still can explain these ideas to some of my non-sociology friends from other fields or from people outside of the school and they think that this is a very great tool of explaining it. So I want to come back to the graphics that you create because I find that really interesting and it's going to be a challenge because we're going to be talking about a graphic on a podcast so, so no, one, no one else will see it but us. I mean, they could follow along but it'll be more challenging. But even before that, as a, a teaching assistant in social theory, mm -hmm. did you find that there were particular parts of this reading that students struggled with? Or did you find that this was one of the challenging readings for students? Or was it like your experience where it seemed like you could connect to the reading? So for me, in my experience of seeing people, you know, succeed in class, they started, like, you know, they were grappling with the reading. But most all the problems, I think, at least in my experience, they lied in the sphere of basically understanding how to summarize it. So when it came to the exams, and uh, we had oral exams, and uh, people had to like, oh, talk about the ideas of blank. And there were not very like, specific questions about any theorists. So it's like, oh, tell me about Durkheim. And people are like, oh my god, what exactly am I supposed to say? So with this being said, the ideas of P Peter Bergen and Thomas Luckman, they're like, well, I understand some of the concepts. They're not difficult, but how do I summarize this whole text or this whole amount of ideas? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point because that's the challenge for every student, for every theorist, right? It's that we're so used to saying, okay, tell me the terms that I have to learn, memorize, and kind of regurgitate. But that idea of saying, well, these are the ideas and what we can do with the ideas, or kind of piecing together that whole approach, that's, mm -hmm. that's where people really struggle. Which actually leads really well into the graphic that you present us with. Sure. So I'm going to have you walk us through it. and Absolutely. Let me open it first. <laughs> Yeah, and for people listening, I'm going to share this on the website so you can download, so you can follow along with what Liz created. Thank you. And we'll try to describe it as as well as possible. <laughs> I will try my best. Yeah, and I'll, I'll probably ask some follow-up questions. Absolutely. And then after you describe it, I'm curious, in general, is this something you do specifically as a teaching tool, or is this also how you help yourself learn these ideas? Because this is not how I approach sure. it at all, but I also like it a lot. And Thank you. I'm kind of thinking maybe I need to be doing this when I'm teaching social theory. The thing is that I don't do it with every theorist, but I do it with the ones that I really... Okay, so I think that in order to explain something, you need to get it thoroughly. Uh, and I think that's a very good thing about teaching, because when you start explaining things, you realize, oh, wait, I'm not entirely sure about that aspect or, you know, this aspect. And my mom is a professor herself. So that's where I basically encountered firsthand things, you know, with explanation, things like that. So for me, I really wanted to get the ideas so I would be able to explain them in my bachelor thesis and to connect them with other ideas that I had. So I'm like, wait, so how, you know, I, I should break this apart first. How should I break this apart so I can explain it to other people and to myself? Because, you know, to the readers, they will be reading it and I need to explain that. So I do this with some of the readings that I actually struggle with firsthand to grasp a lot of things. And some of it is actually of the, I'm not saying hatred. Hater is a really big word. Yeah. <laughs> but if I despise something a little bit. Which is also a big word, to be fair. <laughs> Which is also, I don't know what is a good word uh, yeah. for it, but let's say I have a little bit of negative attitude to that. Let's put it this way. Yeah. <laughs> Less attached to the idea. 
Yeah, let's attach to that idea. So, for instance, as a person coming from former USSR, current Russia, was still like, oh, let's talk about, even though it's not, you know, that as predominant as it used to be, but let's talk about Marx and Marxist ideas. And uh, I never enjoyed it that much at all. And we had this thing that we had to read, I'm not saying the whole capital, which is not true, but a fair chunk of it, like a fair chunk. Which is incredibly difficult to read. Capital is painful. Yes, it was bad. It was really bad. Uh, so I really didn't enjoy that. So what I basically did, I opened my laptop and created no cheat and it came up to like 40 pages. And then I created a scheme to for the explanation because I didn't like it at all. But I decided that if I want to tell myself that I got it once and for all, I might as well, you know, suffer now so that I will be more kind of confident in that the next day or throughout my career. So I did that and then I have this scheme about capital that I show to my students and my friends when they're like, oh, well, I read capital and I'm like, okay, which part of it? You know, things like that. And it's like something which what comes from a really, I would say, like rejection background actually turned out to a really great educational tool. So this is about like stories and jokes yeah. and giggles, you know. <laughs> okay, let's think about this graphic and we won't walk through every detail because I want people to look at, at this on their own. Absolutely. But maybe just give us an overview of how to actually read this. Like that, I think that would be the most useful part. And then that will tell us how this schema works and other people could take a look and then we can pick out a few key parts that illustrate what's so interesting and important about Berger and Luckman. Absolutely. So uh, first of all, the person who's reading that should focus on, first of all, on the center of the graph. And I named it in median terms, right? In terms of George, Harry, me, like I and me. And this is basically a social and non-social part of ourself. And uh, what is, I think, very exciting about these theorists is that they do things that I think some of the sociologists kind of try not to do. And they're like, oh, let's talk about our body experience. Because of course, like in the later in sociology, it has been the case kind of everywhere. But before that, it was like, oh, well, that's social and that's something not really social. So we are not looking at the latter part. So they're kind of like coming from that, that we have this very intimate connection between social and non-social. And it actually works out really well because what they basically tell us about these brackets basically uh, depict the face-to-face interactions. And they depict what is basically uh, they call manipulation or manipulatory zones. And that's basically how we interact with our bodies. And it can be not only face-to-face interactions, it can be the interactions that you and I are having right now, but it's the more it's non-face-to-face, the less intimate it is. So it's kind of like a prototype, what they're calling it. But the cool thing, I think, here is that this is like a manipulator zone that we have and we bring our biographies and our ways of thinking in the conversation through language and language objectifies the reality we have because as they say we're choosing specific means over others every time we communicate which basically objectifies the reality around us so we have some of the meanings that we carry which are basically you know they call recipes we have some motives that we bring into the conversation and we have some social stock of knowledge 
and some knowledge that we have about the world. It can be like some common sense knowledge, some stereotypes maybe, things like that. And when we interact, we create this intersubjectivity, which is a very famous phenomenological word, right, which allows basically us to create this social reality to shift the perspectives and to engage in this conversation. And so if we were trying to locate on the schema, the visual mm -hmm. that you gave us, so the inner subjective part would be everything that fits in that rectangle that surrounds the two circles. Is that the way to locate it? Yes. Okay. So the face-to-face, -face, it's in the center, and this is the intersubjectivity is exactly the rectangle. So that's where this whole thing starts. But this is, you know, again, a very simplified situation, a prototype between only two people that are getting in a conversation and creating something which already is more than themselves, right? Because in this case, they're producing some sort of a social situation, which is more than what they come from. You know, they come from a special background with a special amount of knowledge, you know, with a special type of knowledge, but then they're producing something extra. So, you know, this is like emergent state. And that's how we see the intersubjectivity coming in in this particular regard. Okay, so let's move outside that area. Let's travel down if you don't mind. I'm curious about the section on the bottom. Absolutely, absolutely. That's my favorite section, Kyle. Okay, that's, that's good. So when these people, let's say like these two people, right? Our prototype, they're talking to each other or they're communicating about something and uh, they come with their stock of knowledge and their typifications, right? Their ways of thinking about other people, about other people's actions about the way they see the reality and they have these thoughts until something happens to breach this understanding. So until the typification quote unquote is broken, then we think about it this way, which is uh, I think is a very cool thing about sociology in general, because we're trying to not only to generalize, but to also think about exceptions from the rule. So that's what the typification is about. But in general, in order to function, people try to simplify their reality, like this a priori of social cognition, of, of Zimmo, right? Those things that we think about when we just engage in conversation. We cannot know the person as a whole. We assume that we know some of the parts. So that's what typification is. And if we constantly interact with a person, that's why there is a const in there, or interact not only with, with this person in particular, but in a similar setting, in a similar situation with a group of people maybe, that's where it becomes a habit, right? It becomes some sort of crystallized behavior, and that's where habitualization comes in. So it's on the right. And then we see that people, let's say like two people are talking to each other and they have their division of labor already, but they don't need to explain to someone else what's going on. Let's say they're, you know, on a deserted island. But let's say that they have descendants now and they need to explain why the things are done the way they're done, right? They are like, oh, you need to do this. And, you know, what kids usually do. And it's like, why, why, but why? In this case, people need to do the legitimation process. So when we already have all those roles, so things are already institutionalized, right? We already know how things are done, why they're done between us two, right? And the deserted island area. And it's a constant interactions with the roles with division of labor. Then when descendants comes in, we need to explain why it is the case. And that's why we legitimize 
our actions to other people, let's say to our kids. Why do we have to do the things that we do our way? Why do we have to adhere to time schedules? You know, why do we have to wear clothes or things like that? And uh, in this case, all our experiences, they come to this like general perception of kind of history, but at the same time, general experiences. So we are having those justifications. And there are four levels of legitimation, which I won't go into, but it's from, you know, this, how things are done because people have done it before us to basically, that's an official rule that people adhere to. For instance, like that's how uh, trains function because they have to be on time. What is on time? Well, if you want to go there, and arrive at this particular station to be able to go to work, that's how you should do it. And you know, this is a whole symbolic system. So it goes from how things are done to the whole system of supporting this particular institution. And uh, the last point on the far right is reification. And it's a black rectangle that you see. Why it's a black rectangle? It means that we already do not see the person in the picture. Oh, okay, I see. We'll just see the framework that kind of is imposed on us and we don't feel like we created it ourselves even though we did like clocks or calendars or things like that they kind of work already independently of us even though it was created by humanity okay so so that's filled in because that's where the humans disappear yeah the process is now invisible we could go back and we could trace the history but it's gone okay so that was one of the two places when i looked at this for the first time the two things that interested me the most one was the black rectangle for reification, and now that makes sense. The second thing that interested me the most, and I'm, cu I'm curious what your answer is here, why is there an owl in the top left? Ah, why is there an owl on the top left? It's my favorite emblem. It's like my signature kind of thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought, I was like, all right, so I, I haven't read Burger Luckman for a while, and I was trying to think, is there, is, was there some <laughs> sort of predator? Was there an owl? Like, what, at what point did a bird enter the theory? So that, that's your, that's your symbol for it. Okay. Yes. That's just, you know, everyone has their own signature, and just because I'm kind of an international student, I have this thing going on. Okay. <laughs> okay, and, and so that's good. So you don't mind, and just to clarify, if people listening to this check out the graphic and they like it, you're okay with people using this in the class and then they can keep the owl as a, the owl be your trademark? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's basically like, because I designed it and that's the way I'm printing things out. So it's like, you know, kind of my thing. Yeah. I think, I think I'll use this. Awesome. And now I'll give the one clarification about whether <laughs> I'll use it at the end. So I'll give you the one little bit uh, confession that I have. All right. So maybe briefly, we won't go into as much depth in the part on the top because I think that one actually probably is a little bit more self-explanatory yeah. especially if you've read mead um, which oftentimes people read mead before they get to bergen luckman but just maybe briefly describe what's going on up top yeah the only thing that i really want to point out here i think kyle is the competing definition this whole concept of competing definitions and they're on the objective quote-unquote part and a subjective quote-unquote part that's what Barry Bergen and thomas luckman are looking at so competing definitions of reality on the bottom means that if people want to go out of the picture, they are basically faced with a lot of pressure because it's already something institutionalized, right? And they cannot just say, oh, I don't want to adhere to time. Who cares? Like, I can come to work at any time I want, but that's just a weird explanation. However, people can say how anarchy works, right? Why do we need the state? 
And this part of, you know, of an ideology is not very much appreciated in society, and it can be explained by this competing definitions of reality, because we have this amount of legitimation to the political institution, so we cannot just say, we don't need that, and that's what I stand for. You know, we can think about it, and we can believe in it, but doesn't mean that it's very easy to act on it, if you know what I mean. So that's the competing definitions of reality on the bottom, and on the top, we have a competing identifications of the self. And it's basically pretty much about the same thing, but more of an intimate internal part. So we see here on the top the significant others, right, and a chorus, a chorus meaning that there are people that we do not care about that much, according to... I, I really love this term from the book, and the generalized others also uh, you know, act upon some things that we do, as we know, as you rightfully said, from the symbolic interactionist perspective. So that's where our self-identity is formed in between those, we kind of juggle those opinions and try to think who we actually are. But if we don't like how other people treat us, searching for our identity, let's say, you know, like sexual identity or things like that, then we come to a problem when people define us as one thing, but we don't want to be defined this way, and this is where the competing identifications of the self comes in. So this is like a constant struggle, and I think this scheme is also very good uh, for the explanation of deviance on the micro and on the macro level because of that, because there's competing definitions and identifications. So that's what I think is a very great point to emphasize here. So this is a bit of an abstract question. Absolutely. Go for it. I'm curious how you answered, especially because you're closer to, as we said before, you're closer to the actual stage of learning this material, right? You haven't been 30 years into teaching. So two of the challenges that I always deal with when I'm teaching social theory, and I think it's two of the challenges we all face when we're teaching social theory is, first one is who to include and who not to include, because there's always more people we want to include that we can. Right. But then the second one that we probably don't talk about as much, and it's just as important, is what's the order that you teach things, right? If you're reading Berger and Luckman, where do you place them in the class? And I'm curious, as someone who's getting into Berger and Luckman, excited about these ideas, often uh, helping other students understand these ideas, where do you like to place them in your mind? Do you think it comes based on the diagram? Is it someone you read Mead and then you go into Berger and Luckman? Is there another place that you would think they should be put? Yeah, I uh, think that the way that, at least the way that I approach it, and the way that I think about it is, of course, you should read the classics first because they're saying, you know, when they're saying things about like well, Max Weber, right, and Emil Durkheim, you have to understand what they are trying to say about their micro and macro. But that's out of question because we know we all start with the founding fathers of sociology. But then, of course, symbolic interactionism, we need uh, not only Mead, but Horton Cooley for that, you know, the primary and secondary groups. And then when we move forward, before we study this wonderful piece, I think that Alfred Schutz should be before them since uh, they borrowed a lot of their ideas from there. And uh, of course, Schutz is a more difficult read because he's more of a, on the philosophical side or what is basically phenomenological sociology versus social phenomenology kind of thing. But still, if you don't understand what they're coming from and the pragmatic motives... Do you think you need them to understand it? I guess that's the challenge, right? Because there's never enough space, especially when you're teaching theory to undergraduates. Do you need Mead to understand Berger and Luckman? Or if you simply assign Berger and Luckman, 
can that almost replace me for the undergraduate? And I'm, again, that's a really challenging one because ideally we read everything that leads up to sure. Berger and Luckman, right? We read everyone that you listed, but pragmatically we can't read all the pragmatists. <laughs> so uh, yeah, pun intended. Yeah, I get it. But I think that in order to understand it, maybe we don't need to read Cooley for that matter. But like, I would say that we need to read Mead and we need to read Schutz, like two people that we really need to kind of get acquainted into before we understand where this whole like manipulatory zone comes in or what is intersubjectivity because they talk about it but briefly because they place their whole research you know they're kind of like if you really want to know more about it just read Schutz mm -hmm. because that's where we come from yeah yeah I think that it really should be read because it makes everything much easier to understand especially the um, internalization the whole thing in the scheme here which is like more of a micro level it makes much more sense so we've spent a bunch of time talking about how you first encountered this material, how you understand the material, how you help other students understand the material. Are you going to keep drawing on these ideas as you move forward? I know right before we started recording, we talked about the good news that you're finishing up your master's program and that you are going to continue on for the PhD. So that's that's exciting. Thank you. I appreciate that. So are you going to keep using Berger and Luckman or is this one of those things that you love, but you've you've got other things to do? It is a it is a tricky question, Kyle. I used it in my bachelor's thesis because throughout the conversation, I told you that I have this like three pillars, right? So I was uh, writing. Uh, I wrote basically a very big bachelor thesis. You can see it. People can't see it, but I. But you can. Whoa! How many pages? It's because I'm the only one who can see that. That seems like a whole book. Well, it's with all the references and figures, it's 201 pages. Okay, so I'm working right now with an honors student on her thesis, and it's 45 pages, which was still more than it needed to be. That's something. I know, I know, but we come from a very different background, though. Different traditions, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, I wasn't thanked for it either, let's put it this way. Yeah. <laughs> So my specialty was sociological theory, and uh, I basically worked on my project about social time and uh, more specific, the social organization of time in the context of social inequalities. And I basically created a research framework of studying social time. And on top of that, created a methodology of measuring social time so that I can test it in my future research. I probably can do it in my PhD because of the uh, committee members here. It's a very specific subject, but I really want to do it in my postdoc and publish some articles before that on my theory. And what I'm coming at is that I'm really using Berger and Luckman with their theories of institutionalization and reification in the context of social time and using that in a way that I regard social time as a social institution connected to similar ideas of Norbert Elias about that. Um, and I'm looking at that through the prism that we have as human beings, we can interact, you know, with our surroundings and our manipulatory zone. And uh, that's where I introduced the Meads concept of sociality, because you, you've been asking me before what theorists can, you know, Bergen Luckman can work with. And of course, that's Mead, but here in my research, it was for different reasons. It was for this kind of sociality, which is a quote, like, sociality for me is a being 
two things at once, you know? So in this case, sociality can be with animate objects, not only with people, with like animals, and that will be okay with its natural environment. And this whole thing allows people to see that temporal change, you know, in the environment. So as I mentioned also in the conversation, we see the present, and that's the only thing we can actually situate ourselves in because when we look at the past it's already a past thing so we interpret it when we think about the future it's also our future interpretations of it you know like how we think about it how we think it may happen long story short I am uh, seeing in my research that we have this constant engagement with the environment and creating our like ongoing process of the present but we also have our frames of reference that allows us to see, to communicate with people, and not only with people, but the environment around us, including like technologies and, you know, animals and things like that. And these frames of reference allows us to see the broader picture and actually to synchronize the things that we see. But it comes to a point when, and that's where Bergen-Lukman comes in, we have the institutionalization and later on reification of the social institution of time when it's actually more of a burden than a helping mechanism. That's why we have this acceleration of time, right? We don't have time for everything. You know, you were, uh, you were telling me behind the scenes, like, well, I didn't have time for the podcast, right? And every time, that's, a, that's become a local joke in uh, my life because every time some people talk about time, ha, 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 you know, uh, my friends are like, ah, that's what you're writing about. And I'm like, yeah, because I had this, what well, Robert Merton called professional deformation uh, when people are like talking about something and I'm like, <gasps> okay, all right. Yeah, I know. I know this this thing about that. So yeah, I basically look at social time as an institution and how it influences our lives in the context of how it creates social inequality. So with people with different demographic characteristics, how they deal with time, like people who are married versus people who are single, people with different social standing, things like that. And I create the theory uh, on the three pillars of Elias, Mead and Berger and Luckman, and then I am creating a methodology of measuring it. That's really exciting, and I think there's space for this too. This isn't is not the area that I've gone in in my research, but I've seen my background was in cultural geography, mm, and geography mm-hmm. started paying a lot of attention to time. That's kind of like the new thing that people are talking about. Sure, I get the impression it's more from the perspective of affect theory, um, a different way of understanding and engaging with time. And I know in sociology. I'm starting to see more and more people talk about time and how it relates to power. Um, there was a sure, absolutely. Yeah, there, I'll, I'll send you some information. There's a grad student, Rasan, who did some amazing work on race and time, and so that might interest you. But that, that's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's definitely a part of it. Well, the person who has time kind of sets the rules, yeah. and that's what Norbert Elias said, and that's what I, you know, I'm a firm believer that that's true. Okay, cool. Okay, so here's here's the final question, and here's also my confession. So the last three times I've taught social theory, I've cut Berger and Luckman. Not because how, not because I don't you, not because I don't like their <laughs> ideas. And that's why I'm so fascinated by this conversation, just because that internal struggle of who do we include and who do we not include. And now I'm thinking, all right, well I'll bring Berger and Luckman in. If I do that, then who do I cut? This is your chance. What would you say are the main advantages or selling points? of engaging with Berger and Luckman's work. Why would you tell undergraduates that, hey, we want you to do all the reading, but we know you don't do all the reading, so definitely read this one, or for grad students or larger discipline or for social theory teachers, hey, make sure you still include them in the syllabus. Give us the sell for Berger and Luckman. 
yeah, promoting Berger and Luckman. I'm very flattered. So um, I would say to begin with, what they do say in the beginning of their own book, they're saying that what they're doing, they're doing non and pre-theoretical study of everyday life. And I think that is a very important point that they're making to engage the readers, uh, because when we are even reading Mead, Mead is a wonderful theorist and I adore Mead. Mead is the second pillar of my research agenda. But when it comes to reading Mead, it's actually challenging at first, especially for students, uh, when it comes to especially like texts about sociality, for example. They don't understand, at least in my perspective, uh, you know, from my perspective and from my experience, uh, how do we include sociality can be not only between people, what are you actually talking about? Things like that. And uh, uh, Mead is, I think, in my opinion, is a more difficult read than Bergen Lockman. So that's definitely an advantage. And uh, also, it, it is constructed in, in a very sequential way. So we see the sequence of their thoughts and you don't have to like stop and try to like actually mind map things from different chapters or different points of the reading. You kind of see where the whole conversation is coming to. And as I already said in the beginning, it's a very good reading for synthesis and not only understanding that micro and macro are not that opposite, but also kind of moving beyond these structures and looking how we can connect these ideas in terms of like the whole theory and not using very outstandingly difficult terms like sometimes Giddens does. I love Giddens, but things like that. So I think that will be my selling points. All right. That is a perfect place to end. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your experiences and stories. This was fun. Absolutely. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Mm-hmm.